Well, I, I pray that as we prepare for our text this morning that your hearts have been set afresh as we have alerted you to the upcoming of our celebration of the Lord's table and that that will further occur as we look into God's word this morning. If you take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 5 as we continue on in our discussion. It's page 1197 if, in your pew Bibles if you're using one of those this morning. It's a most fitting day for us to undertake this text because the text focuses on the issue of subjection. Now, as we consider that idea of subjection, there is a unique correlation with July 4th and Independence Day because it was this day in 1776 that our country decided to throw off the yoke of oppression from the United Kingdom and move forward towards independence. But although we may call it National Independence Day, we would find that using a term like National Subjection Day might not be too fitting. There are many historians and others who as they look at our country and, and at all that went on as we established our own freedom, some would say that we were righteous as a Christian nation in moving forward to establish independence. Others would say that we did not reflect a Christian nation for in that true nature of a Christian we would not have rebelled against the authority that was over us. Certainly not my desire to get into those discussions this morning and if you're interested I can provide you resources on both sides of that issue. But it is clear that there was a point where we decided that we were not willing to put ourselves in subjection under England. And so as we consider that aspect of subjection, as we consider the independence which we have received, it's an excellent time for us to stop and recognize what's involved from a biblical perspective, perhaps to better assess that, but more importantly to assess our own lives, particularly as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. If you have been a Christian for any length of time at all, you understand the scripture's frequent call to submission. 38 times in the New Testament we see submission referenced. It is a very common topic in the scripture. The word submit means to put oneself voluntarily underneath the headship of another. It means to be under the control of another. To show respect for an authority figure that is over us. And, and, and sometimes that's a little hard for us to do and, and we don't like that idea because we may not be particularly fond of that authority figure over us. It's the idea of a head who has firm control over those who are in subjection. And again, sometimes we just don't like that idea. It doesn't feel right to us. There are many places in scripture where it references us in a, in a multiplicity of areas to submit. Let me share a few of those with you. In James 4, 7, it says, Submit therefore to God. Now that might seem initially like a fairly simple complex, uh, uh, opportunity for us, uh, very easy for us to submit to God. He is loving and, and, uh, and he would then be benevolent in all that he would do. 
Hebrews 12.9 confirms this idea of submitting to God. And although it seems like a fairly simple concept, we'll find out that there is a lot of complexity in it. In another area, 1 Peter 5.5 says, Be subject to your elders. Be subject to your elders, to your leaders in your church. To those who have authority over you, you are to voluntarily put yourself under their headship. Many passages in Scripture, Titus 3.1 and 1 Corinthians 16.16 and even Hebrews 13.17 tell us all that we are to submit to our leaders, to the elders of the church. Not only to God and the elders, but in 1 Peter 2.18 it says, be submissive to your masters. That in the ancient world, in the original context of that of a master and a slave, in our day, in reflection to an employee and an employer, that we are to submit unto those who are over us in the workplace. Ephesians 6.5 confirming. 1 Peter 3.1 says, Wives, be submissive to your own husbands. Another concept repeated throughout Scripture. Ephesians 5.24 and Titus 2.5 and Colossians 3.8. 1 Timothy 2.11 carries that to another point. And in 1 Timothy 2.11 and 12, it says, A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. 1 Corinthians 14.34 confirms this point of submission. Ephesians 5.21 says to Christians, Be subject to one another. There, and we are all in some way to be submissive one to another within the body of Christ as believers. And 1 Peter 2.13 says, Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution. They're in a reference to government. Romans 13, Hebrews 13, all referencing that same concept of submitting to the government. Now, probably at some point in those list of seven areas that we're to submit, there might have been a little bit of a pinch. It's just like, you know, I'm not quite sure about that. Maybe there were a couple areas that pinched, or maybe it was even a little bigger pinch. I, I, I don't know. In any case, the idea of submission is well attested in Scripture. And it brings difficulty for us, each and every one of us, in some particular area. And this is where the rub comes in, in submitting to God. Because we must submit in all of those areas and to all of His Word. And that is hard for us at times. Because in our flesh we fight against that. Even in Sunday school this morning we were reminded of that in 1 John 5. How we must be those who obey the commandments of God if we are children of God. And that they go hand in glove. That it, it is something that is not optional. That if you are a Christian that obedience is required. But it is not an easy thing. So that makes today's message especially appropriate. And I've titled our message, Understanding Biblical Submission. Understanding Biblical Submission. Let's look at our text together in Hebrews 2. Although we'll take into verse 5 formally, I'm going to read from the beginning of the chapter just to set our context. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 1. For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. 
For the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere, saying, What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But, we, but now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Understanding biblical submission. Our author carries forward the idea of the superiority of Christ from chapter 1 over the angelic realm. In chapter 1, we saw the superiority of Christ as the messenger, and now we see the superiority of the message from Christ in chapter 2. And at the beginning of chapter 2, we see just a hint of judgment and warning. We saw this last week, and, and it is such a difficult concept that the author ties himself with the audience to try to soften the blow of that text. We see that happening because of all of the repeated plural pronouns we or the pronoun us in verse 3. It's including himself. As he writes, he wants to include himself with the body and say, Beloved, I am with you. I understand this challenge. I recognize that I am bringing a difficult message to your ears. And the warning that we see is primarily in verse 1, that we do not drift away, but that we pay closer attention. We spoke about last week how these are nautical terms, paying attention and not drifting away. And yet, in our world today, it is even more deliberate than that. We spoke about a boat which we might moor up out of Billy Goat Hole so that we could be first out in the morning on the water and we don't tie it up well and it floats away. But in our world today, beloved, this idea of drifting is much more prominent. It is if someone has come in the night and untied that boat and pushed it out into the tide because we have drifted so quickly in the church today. Those of the Pentecostal and prosperity movement have begun to drift away. Now, I have many friends who I have known who are in the Pentecostal church. Many who I believe know the Lord Jesus Christ and loved him. But they have started to move away as that movement has gone on to the word of faith movement. And they have begun to bilk people for millions of dollars, alleging healing when the only one who heals is God the Father. 
Alleging miracles when the only one doing miracles is God the Father. Alleging that they can have a prophetic word or speak in tongues as from the Lord. When we have the full revelation of God before us. And they have drifted away. Not in a slow way, but in a radical diversion. And it is covering our planet. And it is not just them. There is this whole aspect we must understand about giving to churches. We, be, we are an media-saturated culture. And many of you listen to various different ones who are preaching on a week-in and week-out basis. And for those that are solid, I applaud that. But are you certain that those you, you are seeing are solid? Where are they as you align them with the Scripture? Would you allow them to come and preach in this pulpit? Or would the elders allow them to come? If they would not... You should not be listening to them. What are the biblical requirements? Are there men out there who we have loved for all of our life, but they have been divorced from their wives? Those men are disqualified, beloved, from preaching, yet they go on and preach. Do you give to these? I would urge you to look carefully into those. It's wonderful to give to the right organizations. It's wonderful to consider solid missions organizations and to be a part of those ministries in and of yourself, even in addition to our church. But make certain that you are giving to those right areas because our church is drifting away. We've seen this in the area of women and gays who are taking the role as pastors what did the scripture say? I, I, I know that can bring a little bit of a pinch, but it's what God's word says. He does not allow women to lead men. Are, are women gifted teachers? Absolutely. And I praise God for the way that godly women are led by other godly women. But they're not to lead men. Are there those who have started leading women, but their ministry has gotten success and bloomed, and so now they are teaching across the airwaves and teaching congregations? That's not a biblical perspective on preaching. And how can a man or a woman who would acknowledge themselves as homosexual be allowed into the pulpit when God's word says that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God? That means they are not believers. So we have non-believers preaching the word of God? The church has drifted away. And part of our not drifting, beloved, is understanding the vital nature and connectivity to the fabric and body of the church through membership. To recognize that when you are a part of a strong local congregation and you are formally connected, you receive protection from that body because there is closer attention paid to you that you not drift away. There is participation which is allowed and offered and encouraged for you so that you would be drawn in, that you would be paying more closer attention to your walk and not drift away. There is provision, there is the body of Christ that is here to help and to guide and to lead and that is most fully experienced through membership in a solid local church. I, I, I don't think that we rightly understand sometimes submission and therein don't rightly understand our role in the church and don't rightly understand membership. 
the warning continues for us in verse 3 when it says, How will we escape? How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Because of the unalterable word of angels in verse 2. Because of God's word from the fathers and the prophets given to us in many ways and many times in Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. Of God's word through his son in Hebrews 1.2. Confirmed by the apostles in 2.3. And God testifying in 2.4. How will we escape? The answer is we will not escape. We must not neglect the salvation which we have been given. We must not neglect the word of God. That's what was given to us in the old covenant and brought to us in full measure through the Old Testament. And how much more through the New Testament and the revelation of Jesus Christ. These are the things, beloved, that we must hold fast to. Because understanding that every transgression and disobedience receives a just punishment. There are no sins that will just blend away under the carpet. Nothing is going to be swept under the rug. Every sin will receive its full punishment, either in the light of the Lord Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, or through your eternal suffering. We must not be disobedient. We must recognize that we will not escape. And the reason is because of biblical submission. Every man owes an allegiance. And if we reject the gospel, we incur greater wrath and greater condemnation. Every man has this responsibility. So our text begins by expressing this understanding. And we see this aspect of subjection in our first point, which I've titled Subjection Exempted. Subjection Exempted. Subjection is exempted in verse 5 from the angelic realm. That is, with respect to the world to come. The author is setting up this climactic structure with this negative statement. Well, what's he saying? We have to ask ourselves as we look at this, what's being communicated? The, the text is purposefully odd. This is one of the places where I particularly love the New American Standard. The wooden nature of the translation really brings out just what's in the Greek text. And it says there in verse 5, For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. We have to step back and say, well, what is he talking about there? What, what is the subject of the sentence? Who is being subjected to what? Notice he isn't saying that the angels are not in subjection. If they were disobedient, and clearly that is not his point, as chapter 1 confirms, because of their strong attributes and their vital roles. But it's not the angels who are disobedient here or who are not in subjection, but rather he is saying that it is the world that is not subject to the angels. Yet there's kind of a, a convoluted way that he says that. Why is he doing that? He's trying to set up this climax. He's trying to draw us in to really make us think about this impact of subjection. One clue as to what he is saying lies in the phrase in verse 5, the world to come. 
It's not the present world. It is one that is yet still coming to us. It is one that is future. The, the word come here is identical with the word that is used in chapter 1 and verse 14. In fact, one commentator notes that the initial four at the beginning of verse five is directly tying back to verse 14 of chapter one. Let's go back and look at verse 14 of chapter one. Follow along as I read it. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Now, you say, well, I, I don't see the word come in there at all. It's in the last phrase. The literal translation of those who will inherit is the ones who are coming to inherit salvation. Again, the identical phrase to the word come in verse 5. So what's the connectivity that he's showing here? The world is not subject to the angels, but it is subject to the same focus as verse 14. Well, who are those? Who are those in verse 14? They are the ones who will inherit salvation. Beloved, they are you and they are me. We are that subject. We are the ones that are the focus of this world to come. Is this you? Are you the ones coming to inherit the gospel? Is the gospel of Jesus Christ that which is in your life? Do you understand that salvation? Have you turned yourself over from the sins that you commit and recognize that every day that we fall short? And do you follow after Christ? Do you seek to be more obedient to his word? Do you desire to know that there are areas in your life where you are disobedient and you don't even recognize it? Do you want to know more of those? Or is it just like, you know, I, I really, it, it's just enough of this sin thing. I, I'm just going to try and deal with the big issues. God wants us to be drawn near. He wants us to understand that we are those who inherit salvation. We are the ones who are going to be in control of this world to come. We are the ones to whom the earth is subject. That's what the first verse is saying. Are, are you following me here? Are, are you buying what I'm saying? Or is this seeming like maybe this is still kind of thin ice, Pastor? Maybe I'm, I'm kind of with you, but I'm not sure. Well, if that didn't totally convince you, perhaps our next clue at the end of verse 5 will. Look there, it says, concerning which we are speaking. The, clue, the key to this clue is the word speaking. Now, if you've been with us through this series on Hebrews, you understand that this book is all about the spoken word. It's all about this verb speaking, and it's over and over again. Back in chapter 1 and verse 1, God spoke through the fathers and the prophets in the past time and in many ways and many portions. In verse 2 of chapter 1, God has spoken in these days through his son. In verse 5 of chapter 1, God speaks to the angels with the question, and that question is, did he ever call an angel a son? Of course, the answer was no, never. But it's a spoken question. One six, God speaks of the firstborn of the Son. In one seven, God speaks of the role of angels. In one eight, God speaks of the Son as the reigning king. And in every verse, there is this verb to speak. 
And in verse 13 of chapter 1, again a question to the angels, did he ever tell an angel to sit at his right hand? No, he never did. But it is a spoken question. All the time, God the Father speaking. Then in chapter 2, we have a switch. In chapter 2, we switch now to the plural pronoun, we. And there is speaking and hearing. Because it's no longer just God speaking. Now it is us. Now it is the we speaking. And we both need to speak as well as hear. In 2.1, we see the writer and the audience must hear what has been spoken. And heed to it so as not to drift away. In 2.2, the angels speak the unalterable word. And in verse 3, the Lord himself speaks, and it's confirmed by the apostles who heard. And now in our verse 5, we are speaking. Who has the we been since 2-1? Paul has embraced himself with his audience. That is the we that's speaking. It is the believers in the church that are speaking. Since this is the same structure as the object in 114, we see again this reference to believers. To all of us who the Lord has blessed with salvation, concerning the things we are speaking, we are speaking of the world to come, and beloved, it begs the question, are you speaking? Are you speaking? Well, of course y'all are. We're always speaking. Our lives are a continual speech. Whether we utter a word or not, our lives are continually speaking. So the question is really not if you are speaking, but what are you speaking? Are you speaking concerning the world to come? That is responding to the call of God in your life? In 1 Samuel 3.10, the Lord came and stood and called as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak for your servant is listening. Beloved, when the Lord calls, is that your response? Speak for your servant hears. I want my life to echo that which you would speak to me, Father. And then your speech reflects that. As 2 Corinthians 4.13 says, Paul comes forward in the second book to the Corinthians in chapter 4 and 13 and says, But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak. Beloved, is this your speech? Because if it isn't that proclamation then it probably reflects as 1 John 4, 5 says. They are of the world, therefore they speak from the world and the world listens to them. What is your speech? The climax being set up is that the angels are not subject to the world, but the world is being subject to the believers. It is being subject to us. The glorious angelic realm is sent out to minister to us. They do not inherit salvation, but we do. The angelic realm does not sit on the throne of God, but as believers, y'all do. 2 Timothy 2.12 says, we will reign with him. Reign, as a term of ruling. Revelation 3.21 
the Lord says, he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. As I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. The world is not subject to angels, but it is subject to the believers. I want to take you to another passage that highlights this further. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8. That will be in page 1132 in our Pew Bibles. Romans is this great, pivotal victory chapter. Romans 8. In Romans 7, we've seen Paul fighting and wrestling with his own flesh. Understanding the war that is going on. The deeds of the flesh that he continues to do. Versus that which he would like to do. How he is in bondage even to himself. And the sin that reigns in him. But in Romans 8, we have this pivotal chapter of the deliverance from bondage. And Romans 8 carries forth this idea that we have dominion over this earth. That we are the heirs of it. Look at verse 17 of Romans 8 with me. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ... If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Beloved, we are those who are the heirs of Christ. We are the ones who are the heirs of this earth. That is exactly what we've been seeing spoken of, of the world to come, of which we speak, that it will be subject to us. And you say, how can that be? Let's look at all of the context of Romans 8 because it specifically addresses this very concept. Let's back it up to verse 16 and read through to verse 21 of Romans 8. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ... If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Hebrews 2.5 was talking to us about the world to come, that which we, or, or that it will be subject to us so also do we see in Romans that this creation was subjected not in futility, but because of the hope. And what is that hope? It's at the end of verse 21. It would be freed into the glory of the children of God. Beloved, as we look to the world to come, we will inherit bodies which are not succumbing to the sin that is in this world. We will be released from these bondage of death. As Paul said, who will set me free from this bondage? Beloved, the Lord will set us free. He is going to bring that truth into our hearts. And then all of creation will be subject to us in the glory of the children of God. It is an incredible conception for us to consider. And it ought not surprise us. 
All of this is the fulfillment of the very beginning of Scripture. All the way back to Genesis 1.28. Back where we see that the Lord said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Where man was put over all of creation. And then in sin we fell. And then in sin the world was subject to that corruption. But one day, one day we will be free. One day we will be loosed. One day we will be with Christ and we will see him as he is. It's the same thing God spoke to Noah in Genesis 9 after the recreation. So the world is not subject to angels because this is the subjection exempted. But it is subject to the believers and that's further confirmed in our second point in verses 6 and 7 which is subjection expected. Subjection expected. Look back with me at Hebrews chapter 2 and verses 6 to 7. But one has testified somewhere saying, What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? Do you see the climax building yet still more? How it's ramping up again. What is that introductory statement? But one has said somewhere. What is that? that how, could that be more ambiguous? Who is the one? What is somewhere? What's he doing? He's drawing us in. He wants us to see that there is a specific pattern that is being established. And that that pattern is what follows in verse 6. What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? As the question was posed in verse 5, if in fact the angels are not the ones that the world is subject to, who is it? I propose to you that it was man as indicated by those sources. Here we see it is man, but it is more than that. It is man through the son of man. It is through the message that is Jesus Christ. The climax is building and it is pointing us to see that who we are, all that we are, is because of what Christ has done. When the scripture says that we are fellow heirs with Christ Jesus, that's what it is speaking about. It means that we are inheriting all of that which he has done and that we are brought on plane with him. Deserving? Absolutely not. But this is the plan of God. You know, it's wonderful to see even the ambiguity of the statement. I, I remember as, as a young child, and it seems like kids, they just become a little more inquisitive. Um, they start at like two years old asking why. You tell them something and they say, why? Why? You tell them why and they ask again, why? And uh, that's just sort of the nature of it. Well, as we get a little more sophisticated in our questions, we start hearing these references. Well, and perhaps you've heard some of these things. Well, they say that it's going to be a lot hotter summer. And as a child, I would always go, well, who are they? Who are these people that do all this saying? That's exactly the idea behind the way the psalmist is introducing here, and this is a quote from Psalm 8, but one has testified somewhere. You know, in, in writing and in going through seminary, you, you don't get away with just saying some people think, or these commentators, or those people believe. Now, I know that because I did this often and got chopped to bits frequently for it. If you say some people, you better be putting down who those some people are. 
See, we're blessed to have our brother Kyle with us studying uh, at Southern. I'm sure he can recognize that full well. Uh, you just don't have that opportunity. You have to delineate. And that's what the psalmist is trying to get us to do here as he brings forth this idea is, okay, well, who is being spoken about? Well, it is man. It is the one who God remembers, and more so, the son of man, the one which God is concerned about. The rest of this verse confirms our previous assessment of this. And this wonderful quote from this messianic psalm gives us this great depth about man and the son of man and the connectivity and how even in the Old Testament, God was showing that he was going to reveal his son as a man. Remember, we talked about some of the challenges in the Jewish mindset during chapter 1 in our discussions there. How they only understood two real conceptions of time. All of that up to the coming of Messiah and all of that beyond. And here, through Hebrews, we're having a continual reminder. A continual proclamation that they have seen as well in the Old Testament. That Christ was coming. And that's exactly what the rest of verses 6 to 8 in this wonderful quote of Psalm 8 bring forward. And we'll come back to those and discuss those further. But as we prepare for the Lord's table, I want to move us beyond the second point and quickly look at our third point, subjection accepted. We've had subjection exempted, subjection expected, and subjection accepted. I want you to look at the last verse with me as we consider preparing our hearts for the table. Verse 9 of Hebrews 2. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Here is our focus. Here is the Son of Man into which we have been brought and saved, who is the one that we are fellow heirs with, the one who was made for a little while lower than the angels, but because of the suffering of death was crowned with glory and honor. The one who deserved never to die, the one who was eternal, came and subjected himself so that we might not have to experience the rigors and the horrors of death. Oh, we will go through it and taste it, but not in the way in which it occurred prior to and without his sacrificial life. And it is by the grace of God that he would taste death for everyone. Now that's that's hard for us to understand because when we think of the grace of God, we rightly think of the unmerited favor that is granted to us, the blessings beyond blessing, the gift of life, the blessings of church, the, the delight of salvation and the joy of the lives that we have because of that. And those are right perspectives. But it's hard for us to grasp that it is the grace of God that allowed him to taste death for everyone. 
And we're reminded that although it was the Jews who brought him to trial and who wanted to crucify him, and it was the Romans who did crucify him, and it is our sin that put him on that cross, that it was indeed the Father's good plan and intention that that happened. As Isaiah 53 tells us, he was pleased to crush him and put him to death. Because in that way, beloved, we are brought near. In that way, we are able to understand what this table is all about. Turn ahead with me to the seventh chapter of Hebrews. And I want to read one verse for you in Hebrews 7.25. Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He is able to save forever those who draw near. Beloved, is that you? Are you those who are drawing near to God? The ones who he is always making intercession for? Those are the ones whose hearts are rightly prepared for this table.